tonight on Arena. Dune 2, Lisa Frankenstein and Four Daughters, other movies up for review. And Drawing from the Well, a show celebrating the great fiddler Tommy Potts. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena as as usual on Thursday nights. We start with movie reviews. Dune Part Two, second adaptation of Frank Herbert's novel, and the second time Denis Villeneuve directs this sci-fi franchise. Part Two picks up uh, from the story from the previous twenty twenty one film, simply called Dune. The Atreides family, as he reunites the Fremen people of Arrakis to go to war against Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Dune Part. Two boasts a visual feast, stellar ensemble class, cast, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, Javier Bardem, Florence Pugh and Austin Butler, among others. Earlier this week, we spoke to Carter Benhania, the Oscar-nominated uh, director of the documentary Four Daughters, goes on release this weekend. The film centres on a Tunisian mother, Alfa Hamrouni, and her four adult daughters, two of whom were radicalised and ran away to Libya. Instead of just telling the story with the remaining characters, Benhania brings in actors to play the part of the missing sisters and another actress to play Alpha, the mother herself, creating a space for action and reflection simultaneously. And finally then, Lisa Frankenstein, a horror comedy set in the American suburb, an American suburb in the 1980s. Plot revolves around Lisa Swallow's misunderstood teenage goth who falls in love with a reanimated corpse called Frank Einstein. Look what they did there. He died 100 years previously. Lisa sets about making her zombie boyfriend into the man of her dreams. Director Zedelda Williams, it is her first full-length feature film, stars Catherine Newton and Cole Sprouse. John McGuire and Carol O'Doherty have been watching all three. They're with me in studio this evening. And let's start, John, with Dune Part 2. Sees the return of Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve as the director here. Yep. Big cast, Christopher Walken, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya, Josh Brolin. So it picks up right where Dune won. Literally right where the last one ended. Now if you throw your mind back, Sean, to October or so 2021, uh, in a gap between COVID lockdowns, Villeneuve insisted that Dune be released in cinemas. Much of the talk at the time was uh, if that experiment had worked and if Mm. we would see a Dune 2. But it made 400 million, again, in those kind of restrictions worldwide, 10 Oscar nominations later, and we shouldn't have ever doubted him. I mean, Villeneuve and this material are just a perfect match. Do we need to have seen Dune 1, Cara, to come into Dune 2? I mean, it, it would help. But it would help. But there is, we're slowly brought back into the world of the characters. Uh, we get to realise the setup between Paul and his his really unusual mother, uh, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Um, so we're given the hints there. What and Paul Latrice is played by Timothy Chalamet. So there's there's enough there to get us to know what was going on and particularly with the Fremen people we learn more about them this time and we're, we're reminded of those connections uh, Stilgar who is played by Javier Bardem is kind of a mentor figure and through him he talks a lot about the he thinks that Paul might be a part of a prophecy so there's a lot of explaining about that so it, yeah, it does help but it's Actually, you don't yes, of course you need to see it you're not going to rock into part two without having seen part one but you, you but could you, you could there's you could. every chance for you to see it as well because it's actually available streaming on Netflix at the moment, the original. Right, so you could do that ahead of going to the cinema. Exactly, to see it. And it's not that difficult a task. Uh, It's not really homework. It's well worth it. But but this is a cinema film. This is a film that you really want to see on the biggest screen you can find because Villeneuve's touch with special effects and visual effects, this is a spectacular film. It is all about the visual sensation of being absorbed and transported to this world. Where does the Zendaya, Zendaya, the actor of this is, where does her character fit into all of the story, Cara? So she's a young Fremen warrior and the Fremen people are divided into those who believe the religious aspect of their people and those who don't. And she has no time for things. It's a whole load of nonsense used to keep them basically enslaved. So she's like, get that nonsense away. But herself and Paul are in love Mm. and she's very much vested in helping him become the warrior that she knows he can be as long as she can keep that religious nonsense away from him. All right. Well, let's have a listen uh, to her Zendaya as Chani is a Chani house. Yeah, she she is here telling Paul ah, what a great fella he is, but also kind of making her point about what a great person she is herself. Your blood comes from dukes and great houses. 
We don't have that here. Here, we're equal. Men and women alike. What we do, we do for the benefit of all. Well, I'd very much like to be equal to you. Maybe you could be Fremen. Maybe I'll show you the way. There's love and war at play for sure in that clip. Um, and in case you didn't know, it was a romance. The music is the music is there to help. The music you. is yeah. When you see it in IMAX, like I saw it in IMAX, Kara saw it in IMAX. Big screen, seven, 70 foot mm. wide, fifty feet tall. And you need the, the soundtrack, biggest screen you can but get. But the yeah. bass, whenever there's a bass note on this, your seat is literally rattling it underneath. It's quite you. an extraordinary. It's really sensation. an extraordinary. Experience. And does it rely on those visuals and the big epic nature? I suppose of the tale. You, you couldn't say that the dialogue here is kind of crisp and tight, really, could you? Do you know, I didn't really have much of a problem with that because mm. for me, the scale of it all, the the aesthetic, the look, and what's at stake. There's a lot of heart there. I mean, some of the dialogue is possibly a little teenage romance scene here and there. Um, but that for, that that wasn't such an issue for me. I didn't mind yeah. the, the rest. I could put that away. And Stellan Skarsgård uh, uh, and uh, uh, as Baron Harkin and even the name. That's kind fantastic. Of there's, yeah. there's serious villainry going on here. Serious villainry with uh, with Skarsgård as the gruesome Baron of this yeah. vile creature. His And he's got two psychotic nephews, uh, Raban, played by Dave Pastuta, and Fade Rathua, who's a new character played by Austin Butler, new arrival, shaved head and there is a sequence right at the centre of the film where they go to Getty Prime which is the Harkonnen home planet it's shot in infrared which comes across as black and white and they have this kind of gladiatorial battle and then there's some palace intrigue with Leia Sedu, who's another new character and that whole sequence is just completely right. hallucinatory. Yeah, it's, I'll, I'll take it's another just clip. just extraordinary. And terrifying. Austin yeah. Butler is... Yeah, yeah, he's really scary. Yeah. Yeah. Here's, here's a bit between Stellan Skarsgård and, and Austin uh, Butler. They didn't go to the uh, subtle school of acting, I think it's safe to say, <laughs> for these particular uh, characterizations. But tonight, you're a hero. My gift to you. I ought to drown you in that tub. <laughs> Don't be hasty. I have another gift for you, a bigger one, Heracles. What about Raban? He has failed to protect spice production. Raban will be reassigned. Tame Heracles' fate. Free the spice, I'll make you emperor. I wouldn't trust him. Mm. That's a no, that spice must flow, Sean. The spice must flow. Yeah, Baron Harkonnen and uh, played by Stellan Skarsgård. And but you were talking about Rob dialogue, and yeah. Villeneuve last week was quoted as talking about how dialogue is really a theatrical thing. It belongs in the theatre, and cinema is a visual form. And it's just as well he clarified his thinking because Kara says some of it is like a teenage romance. To me, some of it is like a perfume ad. That's the dialogue is <laughs> really that we is that good. Yeah, it really is very simple, but. Mm. but the, this is not a complicated story. This is a you know a classic arc yeah, it's of when hero you, and messiah and all of that kind of I stuff. I guess if you but hear when the, they have to sit down and talk to one another, then it can get yeah. clunky and awkward. Yeah, because it's all those big names, and if you don't know the different families and all that, it can kind of go a little bit against the grain. It, it do is, you need it, to be a big sci-fi fan or kind of fantasy fan for this one, or does it have a broader appeal, Cara? As you give me your stars again, I definitely think it, it would help. But I think the fact that everyone is also so very beautiful, just naturally, that's a draw. Just to see it they're beautiful it looks beautiful stars wise I'm I'm obsessed with the first film and I wanted this to be just mm. as good at the start the individual scenes they, they kind of chop and move so fast it's hard to take a breath and know what's happening the second half blew me away completely I, I wanted it to be a five star I can't I can't do it and I feel bad four and a half but my heart loves that a five star amount but yeah. it's just it's just not there it's not be quite there but it's, it's pretty close oh, it's, at four it's and a half what are you saying Joe? I was glued to this I was there for it for the spectacle and this film is spectacular I was there to be transported and this film is transported of, especially in IMAX and I was there to feel something and the film is full of feeling and the, yeah. it's a superb cast his visual sense is extraordinary uh, but it's still a four star movie for me it's a little clunky in the middle and some of the dialogue like I say is just 
Kind of bad. All oh, right. Okay. But so it's a four-star movie. You four, highly recommend it. Four and four and a half. Four and four and a half. Okay, <laughs> that's pretty solid uh, star rating for both of you out of five. Obviously, um, those stars. Four Daughters is our second film this evening. Tunisian documentary won best documentary award at the Cannes Film Festival this year. Was nominated for and is nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, the documentary tells the story of a woman called Alfa Hamrouni, a Tunisian mother, and her four daughters, and the events that led to the eldest two being radicalised and joining ISIS in Libya. Uh, Tunisian director Kouther Benhania writes and directs this documentary. It, it's very. I spoke to the director earlier in the week on the programme and it's very interesting how she goes about doing this. Yes, you have the mother as herself and yes, you have the two daughters who are at home as themselves. Then you have the two missing daughters played by two actresses and you also have the mother at times played by an actress. Yeah, it's a really interesting way to do it. So the, the the bringing in another actor to play the mother is for those scenes that are going to be more challenging. Mm. It is without doubt a really upsetting story, and it's it's not just upsetting in the parts where the daughters are radicalized and leave. There's a history of abuse there. There's mm. violence. There's a lot of dark moments. So they have an actor to step in for those parts, and then they have two actors who step in for the two missing daughters. But what's quite interesting is that even when the actor, particularly, is playing the mother, the real woman is still there, and she is. A yeah. formidable yeah. character yeah. Um, and she's no, no problem in stepping in and saying no that's not how it was yeah. this how and I mean there she really is she's an extraordinary mm. character but as as Carla was saying John the violence that is endemic in yeah. this woman's background particular and it's violence from men all the time it's uh, violence from men and it's actually violence from the same man it's the one actor who plays all the men in this family's yeah. life uh, chiefly her husband who's an addict and a violent abusive dom- a domestic uh, abuser uh, it, 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 this is a tough story but it, at no point does Ben Hania try to make this story exceptional mm. she doesn't this is a common story it, that is made very clear by the film it's a common story in Tunisia this is a culture that she's exploring not one individual family's dark story but rather the entire culture around it and the hope that sprang from the uh, from the Arab Spring around the time that this, these kids were radicalised and sent to Libya yeah. uh, that that has kind of wilted a little on the vine and that came across very strongly in the There's film There's also well. terrible violence that I mean and we see um, beatings happening like where she she had, basically the mother physically attacks the, the daughters yeah, the, like, mean, and these are daughters now in their kind of te- late teens and 20s mm. and, and it's interesting to see that they both um, the daughters I mean they're upset when they, they talk mm. about it but also they they almost forgive her because that's the cycle that she came from and it's this it's that thing of the endemic yeah. violence and how it just doesn't go away and it is hard to watch because it's clear that it, I mean the woman has gone through so much um, and she I mean I, like I don't I don't want to, to say that she does have something kind of like a, a mental illness but I wouldn't be surprised if there's something going on there because she just loses it so quickly mm. and yet she is yeah. she's a complete mama bear at the same time yeah she, she, like, would, she clearly she would, loves the daughters she'd love yeah. them she'd yeah. kill for them and her daughters very much love her as well I mean it's a, it's a really difficult circumstance the daughters have gone through some terrible abuse sexual abuse and, and again you see differences of yeah. different ways of dealing that one of the daughters can't hate the person who sexually and that, it's very it, touching very the, upsetting it, that's the hard hardest part to watch you can understand somebody being angry or yeah. being afraid of being abused but it's really hard to see somebody stand there and say but they still love that person but I mean it's it's so complicated there's yeah. so many layers to and, it. and you really do have to see the way those layers are unfolded in front of us but one of the things I found interesting about the film John one of the many things I found interesting about it was the radicalization story Ben Hania said to me herself yeah I didn't want to get into that story we all saw the headlines. I wanted to get behind the headlines and go into the family itself. So the radicalization is kind of given to us as a set of facts. Uh, yeah, it doesn't go too far into it. Yeah. yeah, they were devoured by the wolf, uh, she says in the opening yeah. monologue, which is a beautifully poetic way yeah. of putting it. But these two young women were accosted on the street for wearing goth clothing. They, you know, Western clothing. They were accosted on the street by a mm. stranger. And... That was the key to them becoming radicalized as uh, militant fundamentalists and eventually joining and becoming ISIS brides, yeah. to use that awful phrase, in Libya. And 
you know, it is on that one tiny moment that their lives were changed and that family was disintegrated. Yeah. But it's it's not as if the rest of their lives were a bed of roses. And it's that yeah. gradual unlayering of just how deep and how painful and how traumatic their experiences, how harrowing it is to hear it, actually. Even the actor who comes and plays the mother has, you know, as uh, she's taken direction from the director and from the actor, that uh, the person the that person she's playing. The mother. <laughs> her face falls. I mean, she, she is, yeah. and that is in pretense. That is in make-believe. What must it have been like in reality is yeah. just, it's it's really a, a, a bracing film. Uh, it will frighten I think, I think it's quite striking, though, that it is quite funny at times as well. They see humour in it. But there's they're warmth. alive. They're, they're still yeah, here. They're alive. Yeah, there. Exactly. Um, so they're, they're quite a unique family that they can still laugh at the end of the day. But it afterwards. is that mix of interview and off-camera <laughs> workshop and behind-the-scenes yeah. material and then you watch the scene yeah. being it shot all, and then you watch the scene. It's almost She's a film very about... clever. Yeah, it's, it's a film about the making about. of the film. It's a yeah, film it's, about yeah, how make, hard yeah. it is to... Can, the process of storytelling is incredibly yeah. difficult, and but the inherent artificiality of filmmaking, even documentary filming, filmmaking, and those multiple planes of interpretation that Cara was talking about, right. all of that it is very John. complex. This is a really good film, but I I wanted it to be better, even as I was watching it. I wanted it to be to go deeper and for Alpha to explain herself a little more, not just what happened to her, but how she felt when it was happening mm. to her. So it's just a three-star movie for three me. Three from you. What are yeah. you saying, Cara? I'm going to go with a three and a half. Um, I do think, I think it's a fascinating piece of work. I'm not sure it always works. Um, and I, I don't really know at the end of the day if it was the healthiest thing for this family to do, but maybe there was healing in it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so three and a half. But um, if we're talking about courage and, and vision and ambition with Dune, then there's the same courage yes. and ambition and vision here from uh, Ben Haney. All right, let's move on. to So th- three and three and a half uh, respectively there for four d- daughters. And let's move on then to Lisa Frankenstein, a horror comedy set in the 1980s. Lisa, played by Catherine Newton, teenage goth who likes to hang around cemeteries. Where else would you be hanging around if you're a teenage goth? Where, and there she falls in love with a dead man from the Victorian era. A freak lightning strike <laughs> brings the said corpse to life. He's called Frank Einstein, played by Cole Sprouse, and Lisa brings him home to make him look more alive. John! No! He's got his hand over his mouth and he's nodding viciously. It's only the end of February, Sean. It's actually Leap Day, in fact, but I doubt we'll see a worse film in cinemas this year than Lisa Frankenstein. This is an utterly worthless, laugh-free so-called horror comedy from the writer Diablo Cody, who wrote Juno and uh, Young Adult. And this debut director, Zelda Williams, who's the daughter of Robin Williams and who probably has comedy in her blood. Uh, And it takes Mary Shelley's much-abused source novel and gives it a kind of an 80s twist, like John Hughes' Weird Science with little bits of Tim Burton's uh, Edward Scissorhands. I think we get the sense... It's rubbish. John kind of didn't like it. Um, (laughs) I think John saw a different film. I thought it was quite interesting. As we left the the press show, I noticed John vanished very quickly. I did. And I thought, that's quite telling. He just disappeared while the rest of us had a little conflict. Do you know something? Look, some of the jokes don't land, uh, but it, it, it is funny. It's really smart Diablo Cody, Cody she she knows young women there's some really clever moments in there and just it's the perfect homage to the 80s and I just th- I think you know if you were a little bit of a, a, a romantic teen who was a little caught up in this world I can see how you yeah. know you could fall in love with the the, the wormy yeah, guy okay. well, listen, and let's, they're, they're very cute as they make their way into their the Okay well world. let's listen to Catherine Newton as Lisa and uh, Lisa Soberano as Taffy here they're on in their car <laughs> on the way to the cemetery and they're talking about said corpse the haunted cemetery it's not haunted it's just abandoned desecrated well i heard the heshers do witchcraft over there and i also heard that gina marzak dedicated her unborn child to satan and that's why the baby has to wear a helmet now i've never seen anybody there i think it's really peaceful and quiet I do wax rubbings of all the tombstones. I have a favorite. (laughs) You have a favorite one? Yeah. A young man. I tend his grave and leave him flowers and I talk to him sometimes. I brought this for you. It was my mom's. It's kind of morbid when I wear it, so. I wanted you to have it. 
Keep you safe, okay? That's really weird, Lisa. And obviously we're cutting there between the car and a little love scene. And in case you didn't know, it was romantic. The music is helping us there. John, can you see anything good? The soundtrack, maybe? I like the soundtrack, actually, Sean. This is so is that going to get any stars? No, it's not going to get any stars, but it's a decent 80s goth right. soundtrack. They have a good ear for... Nothing to recommend it, though. I, not for me. This uh, supposedly uh, funny, but it every didn't joke land. just didn't stars? land. Dead on arrival. No stars, I'm You're sorry, not even Sean. giving it no, one. No what stars, are you saying, Cara? I have solid three for me. I had great fun with it. And I think I think it's going to be one of those ones that's going to grow and grow and get quite the fan base with time. I'm going to hold you yeah, to that, well, Cara. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Dune Part 2 opens in cinemas nationwide tomorrow. Four Daughters is at the Lighthouse tomorrow and Saturday. And then it has the showings in Galway and in uh, the Mermaid Arts Centre in Bray later this year as well. And Frankenstein, which or Lisa Frankenstein, which John is rushing back to see, goes on general release from tomorrow. That's uh, John McGuire and Carol Doherty, our reviewers this evening. You're listening to Thursday Night's Arena. Oxford four-piece ride have revealed plans for a run of UK and Ireland tour dates later this year, as well as a new album, which will be released next month. Formed in 1988, made up of friends Mark Gardner, Andy Bell, Steve Querelt and Loz Colbert, their debut album, Nowhere, was called a masterpiece by Rolling Stone. There was critical and commercial success that eventually hit the skids in 1996, with intraband turmoil prompting them to call it a day. Then, since then, in fact, Andy Bell spent time in different groups, 10 years as a bass player with Oasis until the infamous bust-up between the Gallagher brothers in Paris in 2009. He continued to play with Liam Gallagher then in his band, BDI. Ride reformed in 2014 and have now been together longer in their current second phase than the original iteration as 90s shoegaze pioneers. Delighted that Andy Bell joins us on on Arena this evening. Let's go right back to the 1990s, Andy. You know, that period with Creation Creation Records, the independent label founded by Alan McGee. what are your memories of that time? This was a this was a label that had Primal Scream, My Bloody Valentine, the Jesus and Mary Chain, and lots of other people in there as well. Did you feel at home with that group of of, of musical uh, experts? We were definitely fans of a lot of those bands. I mean, we we were um, at school forming our band, reading NME and Melody Maker, reading about you know the Jesus and Mary Chain, House of Love, um, the Valentines, and. Um, Primal Scream, everyone. And we got signed around the same time that the Scream were recording Scream with Elica. So we'd be having meetings with Alan McGee and he'd be on the phone um, to them in the studio and they were like making Loaded and stuff. So it's all very exciting. Um, I wouldn't say we felt at home at first. We had to sort of adjust to this mm. new world. We felt like kids, basically. We were, we were really young. So um took a while to feel that we belonged there. But, in the, but it was a great time to be with all those great bands. And of course, the term shoegaze has often been associated with Ride's music. I don't think you liked that label too much initially, I think it's fair to say. Over time, has your attitude to that changed? How is it now when you hear the term shoegaze? Oh, I'm totally cool with it now. Um, at the time, it was used as a kind of, as a diss, really. I mean, it was, um, the, the scene was being written about for a couple of years in the early 90s and during that time, it was kind of like, oh, a bit, a bit sneery about yeah. uh, that was the way it was used. But, you know, then then the press moved on to the next thing and it didn't really get mentioned anymore until a few years later, I was touring the US um, with Oasis, I guess, and, and people would, American um, fans would be saying, oh, oh yeah, I heard that you were in that shoegaze band, you know, and, and um, it sort of came back via America and it was shortened from a shoegazing down to shoegaze. And since then, it's kind of been a, almost like a, a, a more of a positive connotation, you know. Yeah, well, it's funny how, you know, what is sneered at in the beginning can become nostalgic for for nostalgia for somebody after 10 or 15 years. I guess that's the case well, for you. All you've got to do to become a legend is just stick around. <laughs> I think you have to do a few more things as well, somehow or other. Um, let's talk about Vapor Trail. Even the title of that song, I think for so many people, will bring back wonderful memories. How fresh is it in your mind, the writing of that song, the process that brought it together? Very fresh indeed. Um, it's one of the ones I really do remember, like it was yesterday. So... Um, 
we're, it's back in, uh, I guess, 89, 90, so late 89 or early 1990. And we were on like a never-ending tour of the UK, just going round and round playing small venues. And we'd be staying in, in like bed and breakfast hotels, sort of small sharing rooms, like four or five of us to a, to a room, you know. And um, obviously no phone, no mobile phones, nothing to record on, but we had guitars in the room and I'd come up with this riff after a gig late at night, sitting on the side of a bed, you know, having a beer and just kind of playing the guitar. Mm. I with these four chords, which is the chords of Vapor Trail, and I had no way of recording or writing it down or anything. I just had to try. I had to go to sleep thinking, oh, my God, don't forget this riff. It's really, really good. Luckily, the morning came and I, and I picked the guitar up and played it straight away, and I just kind of kept playing it um, so that I could keep it in my head until I got to a, a tape recorder. Wow, yeah. It's People think... Amazing how different it was. Yeah, amazing how different it was back then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and that's that opening. Those those four chords. I guess it's very much what we hear at the top of the song. It's such a such an emblematic opening, really, isn't it? The the opening of Vapor Trail. I mean, it it is one of those really easy ones, but it just sounds so good, um, especially on the on the twelve string Rickenbackers. You know, it just really chimes out. Yeah, let's have a listen. You look so strong Then you fight away The sun will blind my eyes I love you anyway Thirsty for your smile I want you for a while You are a Have Vapor Trail from Ride uh, from way back then, <laughs> Andy Bell. I'm, I'm sure as you listen, Andy Bell, to that, it brings back that those memories of those those B and Bs and and that night that you shared so so nicely with us beforehand. But I I wonder about you know you were saying when you started up with Creation, you kind of felt a little bit out of place. You were just kids out of school, but then yeah. you know the top of the pops appearances came along and commercial and critical success came along as well. Top of the Pops was huge at that time. A bit again, people probably don't those who don't remember the period, a bit like that you had to actually remember the four chords that you that, that you had for Vapor Trail. Yeah. Top of the Pops was that was the kind of the, the pinnacle, wasn't it? It was very important to get there. It really was. It was one of those things, um, you know, if you if your parents were a little bit unsure about you being in a band, the minute you turned up on top of the pops, they were fine with it. You know, they, it was like being in Radio Times or a TV Times. You know, the minute your your picture goes into um, the magazine they read or the TV program they watch, you know, you, you're fine. You know. Yeah, and I guess when it a good career choice, you know. Yeah, and when the neighbour said, "And how's Andy doing?" Well, you know, he's on top of the pops next Thursday or whatever. I guess that was a good line for them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, how was that experience on top of the pops? I mean, watching it, it always seemed like such a you know exciting place to be. What was it like actually in the studio as it happened? Well, you watch the program, and it seems like there's thousands of people there freaking out and going mad to the music. But when you get there, it's it's kind of um, it's a bit of a reality reality check. Um, you just realise there's about thirty people in the audience that are just being moved around a lot by the cameramen. So. You're, um, it's it's very much a TV program rather than a gig, you know. Um, so it's not what you expect, mm. and of course you're miming, so it's not quite as cool to do it as to watch it. I've got to admit. Well, there you go. You're telling us that it's not all happening for real. You've shattered so many people's illusions. I know. This <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to all of them. Maybe we can do a helpline on the radio station. Just to sort of like we'll we'll, we'll, put, we'll put the numbers out afterwards, of course. Um, <laughs> the transition from Ride to Oasis, it was a big transition in, in a few ways, Andy, not least of which was 
the transition from guitar, which was so important to you, and in fact, obviously to Ride and the sound that you made with with that band, you took up the bass. Uh, had you played the bass much at all before you auditioned for them? Well, not really, but most guitarists do kind of feel like they could easily play the bass, you know, because a bass is like a simpler guitar. It's four of the strings of a guitar. And, um, you know, most guitarists think, oh, I could probably do that. So that was my attitude going in. And, um, yeah, I did. I soon learned there was a bit more to it than that, but, but um, I picked it up pretty quick. Yeah, but um, you, you, now you've alienated all the bass players in the world as well, but they have probably are an alienated race most of the time well, anyway. I'm, I'm a big fan of the bass, actually. Um, and when I when I started, I came in and played played it with my fingers. I thought that's what we were supposed to do. Um, and Noel and Liam both said, I oh, know, use a pick. You've got to play it like a guitar. And Noel said, um, you know, the best the best bass players are guitarists. That was kind of... But, you know, there are people out there that are like, um, that are always meant to play bass and I think Ride's got one of them Steve Quarrell um, also you've got Manny in the Stone Roses um, Paul McCartney although Paul started on guitar as well didn't he but mm. there's definitely a lot of bass players that that's that's their ultimate you know that's their place yeah and, and I wondered about you know playing the bass like that clearly the respect is there from that period and, and from those great bass players that you've mentioned there how did it change or did it affect the way you wrote music and you did write some pieces some some music while you were with Oasis where you were giving full, yeah. where you're giving full credit well I was still writing on guitar actually but um, mm. tell you what changed being a bass player changed my personality it made me a lot more kind of Less, less of an e- less egotistical and more kind of like, um, you know how a bass player is more part of the support crew of the band. You know, like uh, I'd always be, you know, standing close to the drummer Alan White or um, all the drummers that Oasis had. You know, but in the beginning it was Alan White. Um, I'd just be kind of inside that like low end, listening out for the kick drum, and and it kind of my vibe was I'm here to kind of support the rest of the sound and the, let the guitarists do their do their wild stuff. The bass player is going to be here holding it down. And that goes into your personality as well. You sort of become a little bit more quieter and more kind of, I don't know, supportive maybe or something. I guess it, it means you, you you become more of a, a member of a team than uh, yeah. yeah than the front guy, if you like. That That's yeah. what becomes important. Like, you know, you're not Ronaldo. You're more like, a, I don't know, a great defender. Yeah, and if the defenders aren't there, it doesn't matter how many goals Ronaldo scores, they can still lose if the defenders don't stop the other ones going in. Um, yeah. The other thing that I that I, I I wondered about the change from... Now, Wright had had success, commercial and critical success, but you were in a different world when it came to Oasis in terms of global stardom and, and all that went with it. How difficult a, a change was that for you? Um, I thought it was going to be quite a big thing to get used to and it, of course you know the crowds were much much bigger but um the attitude was kind of similar in a way because there wasn't um it was it was really just based around the guys on the stage so you know you've got four or five musicians on stage and it's all about what you what you play the chemistry between you and, and how you put it out to the crowd and what the crowd get off it and how they react you know so you're really a constant it's like a moment between the band and the audience and that never changes no matter how big or small the, the crowd is or how famous you are, I think that was the biggest thing I took away from it was that um, even when Oasis was playing stadiums, it was still really kind of genuinely about the music, um, just kind of creating that, that feeling, you know? Uh, of course, there was the famous moment in 2009 and you, you were there for that, but let's concentrate on the great reunion that came in 2014, the ride reunion. I think it was you went off to play at a at a festival in Barcelona. How quickly did the four of you kind of feel, hey, we were doing something good back th- back back when yeah. and we're, we can still um, do it now? Sure, yeah. Well, it started off with a couple of gigs and then over time it kind of like, grew and grew. So we ended up going on tour for most of 2015 as well. So at the end of that, um, we'd been playing, obviously been playing all our old stuff and we kind of got a real good primer there from hearing the audience reactions to all the different old tunes we played. And it really reminded us what what parts of our sound, you know, because our catalogue's got 
got a lot of ups and downs. <laughs> there's, there's albums that work really well and albums that didn't work so well. So we kind of, we zeroed in on the stuff that was really working. And I think it gave us a good little um, idea of what kind of music people wanted from us if we made new music. So that was a good start to getting back to writing new stuff again. And I guess you could argue that some of what you're doing in the, in the new iteration kind of harks back to that that early uh, ride material. I want to finish with the, the latest single, actually, from the upcoming album, This Is Last Frontier. But before we do that, you're married to a Dubliner. Are they still referring to you as that blow-in from England or have they begun to accept you yet? I, um, I, I'm i very keen to sort of uh, accentuate my Welshness when I come to Ireland, you know, because I was born in Wales. Oh, yes. So I'm actually... A- technically a Celt but um, no I love my Irish family um, my my wife uh, is from Rathbarnham in Dublin and her side of the fa- her mother's side of the family are from Tyrrells Pass in uh, County Mead West Mead um, so there's been a lot of a lot of good times in Ireland with the, with the uh, family and friends ah, well listen it sounds as if you've got you've got all the geography right and you've got all the relations mentioned so you're, you're playing your cards perfectly Andy on that one lead us <laughs> lead, lead us into Last Frontier would you and I'll, give, I'll tell people the details of the gigs afterwards yeah yeah well this is Last Frontier it's the new single from Ride and it's from the album Interplay Frontier, the title of that track from Ride and their new album, which is called Interplay. That album will be released on March the 29th and then they will be live at the Limelight in Belfast. That's on September the 2nd. They're at the Three Olympia in Dublin on September the 3rd and at Cypress Avenue in Cork on the 4th of September. And a great chat that with Andy Bell. Thanks so much to him for speaking with us this evening. You can find out full details of all of the gigs on ticketmaster.ie. Drawing from the Well is a celebration of the music of the late great fiddle player Tommy Potts. It's a co-production between the National Concert Hall and the Irish Traditional Music Archive. On March the 14th, a number of artists will gather to remember Tommy Potts and his music, among them Ephany Vrain, Noel Hill, Ronan Brown, Paula Meehan and Donald Fallon. And among the musicians taking part will be my next guests, Ellen Piper, Sean Oak Potts, and his daughter, fiddle player Ellen Potts. Um, I'm calling you Sean Oak just <laughs> just for a minute now, if we can, Sean, because you might explain the family tree. Your father was Sean Potts. Let's let's yeah. get back to Tommy and and work out the well the the Potts, if you like the the the, the Potts musical family tree is um, 
about 130 years old now from what we know. Uh, John Potts was a flute player. He came to live in Dublin in 1896 from Banno in South County Wexford. And these are Tommy's parents. Tommy's father. Yeah. And he, when he came to Dublin, he learned the pipes from the, the then uh, new Pipers Club. Dublin Pipers Club was set up in, in 1900. And he learned the pipes there from Nicholas Markey and became a real uh, staunch Illum piper, obsessed with the instrument. And he then had did a family of 12, but he passed on the music then to... Tommy was, I think, the third youngest in the family of 12. Um, Tommy's older brother, Eddie Potts, was a great piper, and he carried on the sort of piping tradition. But he went on into dance music, and uh, and Tommy went playing the fiddle. And the other uh, daughter, Teresa, was a great accordion player and piano player. So none of them actually kept the pipes up, which was a terrible <laughs> disappointment to John Potts, right. who then took over <coughs> teaching people like Tommy, uh, Tommy Reck and became a really, he, very important, pivotal figure in, yeah. in the development of villain piping. But uh, Tommy took his own turn from, from a young age. Yeah, because he had he had started on the pipes, I think, for ten minutes type of thing, didn't he? Really, he didn't spend too long he, before he, he moved on to the fiddle. Yeah, he used to he used to skip class. He was going down to Leo Rowsome, who was a young man himself yeah. at the time. His father Willie had passed away, and and he took over the classes, and uh, he was going to classes. But he used to skip the classes, and Eddie used to take the classes for him. Um, he 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 didn't like the whole. Uh, fitting and looking after pipes and chisels <laughs> and things. I think he wanted to go straight yeah. into music. He, he, yeah. he had a different kind of... Didn't bother you, clearly, because you have the set of pipes <laughs> sitting on, always your, bothers on you. your knee. Ellen, did you decide, I'm have, I'll have none of that putting pipes together either? Because yeah. you have the fiddle sitting in your arms. I know, and I don't think it was really up to me at the time, but I just remember, you know, from an early age when I got my first fiddle off Kevin Glacken, I remember him saying, you know, we'll we'll call it Tommy Potts, and I, I remember that was the first time I'd ever heard his name, and kind of it 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 started from there. And my teachers after that, you know, Darren Glacken, Liam O'Connor, Jesse Smith would have yeah. all those great fiddle players would have really, you know, encouraged me with Tommy's music and taught me his tunes and stuff. So I don't think there was ever a question of me being a piper. I think it'd be too loud in the house when we'd be practicing, yeah, but. Yeah. So oh, yeah. uh, so then what we have is there was Tom there was John Potts started the whole thing. Yeah. Tommy Potts, the fiddler that that this show was about. Your father then yeah, Sean Tommy's Potts, nephew, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, sorry, Tommy's nephew. Yeah. And, and then Sean Potts uh was your dad. Yeah. Uh, and and he was the piper with the chieftains. You're he was the piper. A whistle player, yeah. Whistle but player he, he the played chieftains. the pipes himself yeah. as well, yeah. Then and there's was, you with the pipes here and Ellen with the fiddle. Yes. So there five go. generations. I'm yeah, exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a hefty, hefty thought. Yeah, but he, 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 my father was very close to Tommy, and I think Tommy imbued him from a young age with uh, a deep mm. understanding and love of music and the creativity inherent in it. You know, um, so he, he was a very important figure t- for my father. Let's have a listen to, to Tommy. And I, you, this track is it's from a, a very famous recording in, in the in RTE production, in fact. Um, believe me, if all those endearing and charms and the rocky road to Dublin, it's, it's just what he does with the fiddle is absolutely magical. Believe me, if all those endearing young charms and the rocky road to Dublin played by the great Tommy Potts and with me in studio, the grandnephew, 
of Tommy Potts and the great grandniece of Tommy Potts, uh, Sean Potts. We're just calling you Sean from now on, Sean, and, and Ellen Potts. Ellen, you were saying that, you know, when you started playing fiddle, you hadn't really even heard of the Tommy Potts. You've certainly heard of him since that. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, your, your dad was just saying as we were, uh, when I said we were going to play that piece, you're playing that at the concert in, am, in the National yeah. Concert. No pressure. What, what kind of pressure does that put on you? Or even taking up the fiddle with the name Potts, you know, what kind of, how does that feel to you? I don't know. I think there's a certain expectation, obviously, that comes with the name. But, you know, Tommy's music speaks for itself. And I don't think anyone will ever be able to replicate it to his ability. But I think I can definitely try. And mm. I think there is a bit of Tommy in me when I do play and, you know, breaking down his music and, you know, learning it has has been great over the years. And I think... You know, it, it's a difficult task to take on those tunes, but... And I guess the other best. side of it is, Tommy was a great believer in the idea that you took the tradition, but you made it your own. So if he were alive and was talking to you, he'd be saying, make that your own element. Yeah. It's, it's not mine any longer, it's yours. Absolutely. I think, you know, he did break boundaries when it when it came to music. And I think that's what makes him one mm. of those great standout artists in music. Yeah, and, and I guess that's what the what the concert on uh, uh, the drawing the well is. concert will be about. Yeah, in Sean. so the, the, the concert is the same principle as the the artistic programming in 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 the Irish traditional music archive is to connect contemporary artists with uh, the collections in the archive with musicians to inspire new work, new art, new performances, yeah. and, and and it's the same. The, the theme of this one is Tommy Potts. All the musicians involved are connect, either connected with Tommy, have a, a huge interest in Tommy's music, are are inspired to to do something unique around Tommy's music but you, you mentioned there about what the Tommy breaking boundaries that piece you played so the first tune he was always obsessed with Thomas Moore, that Thomas Moore melody because yeah. his, his older brother Paddy Potts used to sing it he was the boy soprano they thought he was going to be the golden child but actually it turned out to be Tommy but uh, he used to sing that song and he's beautiful version like so unique the way yeah. he plays it uh, the way he slides those notes but the, the second tune he plays when he plays the Rocky Road to Dublin that little pulse that he starts before he got he was inspired by by uh, one of Charles Villiers Stamford, the composer, right, his, yeah. his his rhapsody. You know, so he heard this pulse, and that he took that and put it into the Rocky Road to Dublin. Like, yeah, so and that, you hear him doing things with the that, music that of Bach. The mind, he, this way his mind worked. Yeah, he takes Bach ornaments and works them into traditional Bach, tunes as well. Bach You're going to play yeah. for us ever, however, right now. So what what are you going to play? And it will be another two generations of the Potts family yeah. and the two Potts instruments, I guess we could say, yeah, the pipes yeah, and the fiddle. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ellen's going to start off with uh, one of Tommy's great. Uh, uh, Versions of uh, a Redford and Garrick, the the famous uh, song air from the penal times, and then we're going to play another reel that associated with Tommy called uh, the Steam Packet. After that.
Absolutely beautiful there. We had uh, two tunes on Rev Thuang and Garig, uh, starting out there on Fiddle with Ellen Potts and then joined by her father, Sean Potts, with that version of the Steam Packet. I have to say, Ellen, in the, in the opening section, after you'd kind of tuned up the violin, as it were, <laughs> that way you double-stopped and the way you started it out, I, it sounded like Tommy Potts to me. And I really, well, not that you were trying to copy him, yeah. but you, you obviously have a sense of that tradition coming through on your fingers. I know, I think you listen to them so, so many times that they actually just become engraved in your memory mm. when you're actually playing them. But I don't know, I just, I love how kind of free Tommy is with his music and I like to to play with that kind of mindset that it's it doesn't feel, you know, restricted yeah. and that you're just, fe- like how you feel, you know, comes out through through the music. And nice for the Potts family to have another fiddler in the, in, the, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in a generation, Dan, John. Um, you're writing a biography of uh, Tommy at the moment. Yes, I'm doing a, a biography for the Irish Music Archive on Tommy. Um, Liam O'Connor was um, really very keen mm. that, you know, that Tommy would be, uh, properly captured that uh, proper uh, study would be done into th- this unique uh, folk yeah. artist you know um, and you know I've been afforded the time to do which has been a wonderful experience for yeah. myself both personally and artistically you know but um, you were telling me that you spoke um, and I spoke to Martin Hayes recently about and he he was raving about Tommy Potts and the, the effect he had because he your Tommy played in their house at uh, different times along the way you have a quote from Martin that yeah, you're using part, so the part, of, part of the biography that we're doing is, is, is talking to various contemporary artists who uh, and players who would have been familiar with um, with Tommy and his music so he, he, this is what Martin Hayes said about him um, he was such a true artist uh, that he was frightening. He would prey in your conscience almost. There was a level of purity there that was largely unattainable for most people. He was uncompromising from the depth of his own vision. That's a rare thing, to go so deep as to be willing to forego all public acknowledgement, literally. Not many artists can do that. Van Gogh did that. He sells two paintings in his life. He dies without tasting any of the success. So in some ways you could think of Van Gogh as a folk artist, which is like what Tommy Potts was, a folk artist, a self-educated artist who goes to a depth that could be, in my opinion, recognised artistically across the globe at the level of a Van Gogh. It was that sincere, it was that real, it was that important. Wonderful statement from Martin Hayes about Tommy Potts there. And uh, thanks to Ellen Potts, uh, great Grand niece and Sean Potts, grand nephew of Tommy Potts, for being with us this evening. Drawing from the well, Tommy Potts will be at the National Concert Hall March the 14th. Lots of wonderful artists involved in that. 8 pm, nch.ae will give you all of the details, and that is our lot for this Thursday evening. Paula Shields and Leah Murphy researched. Dolly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. James Feeney was on sound this evening, and tonight's programme was produced by Keshi. Back with you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock, here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.